it's time to go beyond the locker room talk and listen in with me, GB, producer Jay, former patients and current friends of our own Cornell-trained, world-renowned urologist and surgeon, Dr. Michael Hyman. Let's talk about the issues on men's minds where no topic's out of bounds on another sit-down with two men and a doc. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Uh, JT, how are you? I'm doing fine, GB. I'm uh, joining you live from the closet. I've moved. I've, all of the podcasts I listen to seem to be recording from their closet, so I decided to be a professional and do the same. <laughs> <laughs> Sheltering down the closet, and uh, and you, Doc? I'm I'm um, I'm speaking to you from my eldest child, my daughter's bedroom, because she's in our office doing some university work, and so I decided to take her room. It's a little messy in here, but otherwise um, I can deal with it. Does she have remote learning from uh, for her last semester yes. there for this? Yes, year? yes. Yeah, they're doing remote That's learning. Is it, is it working out? I mean, the co- we were familiar with yeah. high schools, but... Yeah, it's working out. It's working out. I mean, she doesn't, she wishes she was there, but at yeah. least she's seeing the people in her class. She can see her professor. And, you know, she's getting something out of it. I wonder if that's more successful at the higher at the higher level of education. That high school is a little it's tough, but I don't know. I guess there's pros and cons for both. Yeah, yeah. yeah my my daughter my daughter has remote learning. She's in her second year of uh, college studies as well, and and her experience is that the professors are just loading her up with all sorts of work, and uh, it's actually. She's indicating it's actually more work than when she was on campus. Hmm. Hmm. I, I don't know if I've heard that from from mine, but I guess it's different wherever you are. Because I got another daughter who's in, um, you know, in a charter high school, and then my son is also in a charter high school, and they're having different experiences as well. One's having a ton of work, and the other one's having very little work. Yeah, even so teacher to very, teacher in the same school yeah. is is yeah. the same thing yeah i don't think there's really a set protocol so they're all handling it differently yeah yeah so what's, uh, what's the deal interesting times interesting times uh not only not only having to uh work from home but interesting times going to the doctor's office so um i had to go to the doctor's office today and it was quite an interesting uh protocol it was sort of a, a last minute appointment you know with i something happened my foot over the weekend and and i needed to get to the doctor so um michael I'm, I'm i'm curious about your protocol but let me basically tell you what what they did with me um they originally asked for for a consultation over the uh, phone so a telemedicine consultation um i told them what it was it was uh, i clipped my toenail too short it was an ingrown toenail and they said oh oh and uh you know come on in but they wanted to make sure that I was healthy. My family was healthy. They asked me to bring a mask. They took my temperature, and uh, they were also spreading out all of their appointments so you didn't have multiple people in the waiting room, which which I thought was very considerate. And then when the doctor finally came to me, he was socially distancing himself, uh, just you know reevaluating everything before he sort of got got a little bit closer within that that six feet. So, um, you know. Office extremely clean. Uh, appreciated the fact there wasn't a lot of people, but I'm I'm curious what what are the protocols that that you're following? 
It's very similar. I mean, we, we tell people, um, first of all, we screen them before they come. We ask them, you know, have they either been sick themselves or have they been exposed to anybody in the last couple of weeks who's, uh, you know, who's uh, either been sick or certainly someone who's been tested positive for COVID-19. And then um, we uh, request that they wear a mask when they come in. Um, and we tell them uh, that upon arrival to uh, call the, the front desk when you arrive, um, because if we have like a, any kind of a backlog, we, like I have two exam rooms, or actually I have three exam rooms, and my, my associate has three exam rooms. And if for some reason, although it hasn't happened because we're just not busy enough, but if for some reason all three exam rooms are full, um, then we'll tell them to wait in their car until we have an open room that they can go straight into. Um, so then we, we tell them just stay in your car and we'll call you when it's time to come up the elevator and we'll put you right into an exam room. Um, so that's pretty much our protocol. And then when they get in, we check their temperature and kind of rescreen them again. All the staff are wearing masks. And when I walk into the room, um, I'm wearing a mask and I, also, you know, practice social distancing. I always sit across the other end of the room. So I'm, you know, at least six feet away. And then I try to limit my actual physical contact to just the times that I really have to. And um, that's basically it. Yeah, and then, and you and find then people I... are, oh, sorry, I was just gonna ask, people are feeling, feeling pretty good about it. That you're able to get patients in and out and, you know, I'm, I'm sure your volume must be a little bit less, but otherwise you're able to proceed with your practice. Oh, the volume is, volume is way less because you have to realize that like probably about 75% of what I do is routine follow-up type stuff. It's only maybe less than 25% that is stuff that really someone's having some issues um, and it, they're symptomatic with something and it's not something they feel can be you know delayed. So I'm only seeing maybe like four or five people a day. It's very minimal. Um, and, um, uh, I'm sorry, what was your question? I can't face now. You, just, you were uh, asking. I mean, just the patients are feeling, they must feel good because they're going in there to see you. That means they really have to be there. I'm guessing. So they must be happy that you're seeing patients I mean, at all. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It's all over the map, to be honest, Jay. It's like some people, I had one guy who come in, came in today and his wife called this morning worried because his testicle was swelling up. He was like a 75-year-old guy who I, I've known for, for several months. And I know he's had problems with bladder emptying and recurrent infections. And so I knew when she told me his testicle was swelling up, it was likely that he got a secondary infection in the testicle, which can happen, what we call epididymal orchitis, which is like a orchitis is the swelling of the testicle and epididymitis is the swelling of the little structure next to the testicle called the epididymis, or we call it epididymal architis. And I could tell he was having this, and that's the guy who definitely needs to come in because those kinds of infections can progress quickly till, you know, and someone will become septic. They'll get really sick and they have to go to the ER. So I told him to come right in. That was really important. And, um, and to get him taken care of. Now, another guy came in today and he complained of a rash on the head of his penis. Now, that could be nothing, or it could be something serious. You, you never know that that could really cause serious uh, harm if it's blown off. Or, or um, it could be a really good topic for the show. It could be a good topic <laughs> for the show. Um, in his case, it turned out to be really just like a contact dermatitis, which is like, you know, something was obviously, it wasn't infectious. It was 
something in his in his laundry detergent or his soap or his his girlfriend was using some kind of a lubricant and it was causing some skin irritation. So it just required some proper counseling. So you just never know. Um, I had another person interestingly call me today and really, really an adult desperately wanted me to do his circumcision today or tomorrow before the Jewish holiday of Passover, which is coming in two days. He was a converted Jewish guy and he really wanted to be circumcised and was calling around to find out if it was any possibility that we can do this. And I had to tell him like, you know, I, I, as much as I feel for you, I'm Jewish myself and I understand the urgency. On the other hand, if there was any kind of a problem or a complication and you ended up going to an emergency room, I mean, right. that, was just, that would just be ridiculous, you know, for, for us to take up a, a slot in the emergency room because we did an elective circumcision. Um, even if it's, you know, for this urgent religious reason. So those are the kinds of things I'm hearing about. Hey, hey Doc, um, hey, Doc, um, yeah. on, the, on the circumcision for, for, for the religious for the religious ceremony, you just need to draw a little blood. You don't necessarily need to do the full circumcision, right? I don't know. I'm not a moil. Um, yeah. and, and, and in truth, um, I would have to consult like the rabbi about that. Yeah, I, I think that's I all you need to do, but right. I, yeah, you but may be right. You're I'm no right. mohel. Well, that brings new, <laughs> new meaning into why this night is different than all other nights. That's for <laughs> there sure. you go. That's right. That's Ouch. perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I've thought a lot about this um, because we're, we're, we have like long lists of things that need to be done on people that we're just kind of um, delaying. So, there are certain guys uh, that are like, you know, they're getting up three or four or five times a night and they're having, they're struggling to urinate, but they're not in any kind of immediate danger, but they're, they're unhappy and they really want to get their prostates taken care of. And we've just got, you know, a long list of people like that, that need to have procedures done. Um, and we're just waiting until we feel like it's reasonable to go forward. But the $64,000 question is, when is that? I mean, obviously we're not going to wait until, our entire society has um, acquired some kind of immunity from either a vaccine or what have you, because then these guys are going to be waiting two years. So it is interesting. I think I think what I've come to decide in my own mind is hopefully, you know, we're going to get past the spike and the curve will will settle down and the hospitals won't be so overwhelmed. And then we're going to have to start like kind of prioritizing, you know, what is able to happen. And I mean, I think with it, when it comes to even these elective procedures, like come, you know, maybe June, we got to start letting people come in and do them. But guess what? They're all going to be wearing masks, I'm sure. As and, I, and then the question is, what am I going to be doing for the next two years? I guess I'm wearing masks in my office from morning till night for the next couple of years until we've gotten an acquired immunity in our entire society. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's going to be pretty much everywhere. I'm trying to imagine any crowded environment um, especially with anyone who is already in some sort of danger of this, you know, be it age or pre-existing conditions. Um, but the doctor thing, just to touch on that one more time, is I think it's very interesting that people are being self. You've got your own list, but I think everyone probably has their own kind of threshold. For GB, apparently it's a, you know, something with his toe, um, which I'm sure was quite valid and painful. Um, and some people are probably living with things maybe longer than they should. So uh, I think it's important. I think it's a good message that you're sending, which is the doctors are taking precautions and 
frankly, uh, you know, if you need to see a doctor, you should. Um, and that's what they're there uh, for. Well, you don't want you're to bringing, get so serious. Right. You got to look at, here's what I would tell people who are listening. You've got to weigh the risk benefit pathway of the two options, the option of getting taken care of, I, you know, with your doctor um, versus the option of risking a visit to the emergency room where there could be a ton of COVID-19 patients. Right. Way worse. Um, so, cause I just got a, a friend of mine who reached out to me over the weekend, whose son, who's uh, 17 years old and has inflammatory bowel disease, which is like Crohn's disease. And they have him on some kind of IV infusion drug that he has to go into the hospital to get. Um, it's called Remicade. And, um, and she said, Do you, you know, I'm thinking we've been delaying it for a week or two. And I guess we're just going to keep on delaying it um, because I'm afraid to take him to the hospital. And I said, you know, the problem is, I said, first of all, if you take him to the hospital, unless it's a very impacted hospital, like I can tell you, my community hospital, there's really only like, it's only about 70, uh, I'm sorry, 30% full. My hospital is very empty right now, of course, because of what Jay's saying. A lot of people just are pushing stuff off. And so the hospital is very empty. There's only about 30% capacity right now. Who's in the hospital? Well, there are two floors devoted to COVID-19. Those are people who either have it or are being ruled out for it. And the rest of the hospital are people who have been ruled out or who are very, very considered extremely low risk. So I said to her, I go, you know, you would be considered very low risk. He's just going in for an outpatient infusion. The flip side is you're delaying his infusion. And the more you delay, the more likely he could have a serious flare up of his Crohn's and you'll wind up in the ER and then you'll really be kicking yourself. So I encouraged her to talk to her doctor about the risks and benefits of delaying and really think very seriously about just going to the hospital. They'll probably put him in a safe area away from the COVID-19 patients and he can get his infusion. Yeah. Hey, Doc. Yeah, I think you, that's a strong message to send. Hey, Doc, aren't you taking hydroxychloroquine for protection? I am not. I, I, I had read that that's uh, like the miracle drug. Yeah. You read it or you heard it, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, obviously that's a big controversy right now. It's and all over the papers. Certainly, uh, our, yeah, our president is really into it. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, do you understand what they're trying to do with those drugs? It, I'll explain it to you because this is actually a really interesting concept. And I've read a lot about this. The, you people all over are wondering, and, and we're, we're there is some really strong hypotheses, meaning they're 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 very. I'm not going to say that this is a likely answer, but they have very strong merit. The hypotheses of why some people are getting so sick from this, and some people don't have any problems at all. Why are some people dying even if they're healthy? And what we believe is that there are. Certain individuals are genetically predisposed to what is known as a cytokine storm. A cytokine storm. Yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll explain in a second. It's also known as it's synonymous um, with what's known as SIRS, which is systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And these, this is cytokines are little biochemicals that all of our immune cells possess that are released in the setting of some kind of physiologic insult like an infection. So uh, uh, you get exposed to a virus 
or a bacteria or anything, and your immune system revs up to fight it off. How much it revs up is variable and somewhat related to your genetic code. Some people have an over-exaggerated revving up of their immune system and they get what's known as a cytokine storm. They're, the cytokines are released massively and so they have this huge immune response. Um, and that's what we call systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And we, we know that some people, like it's not um, unrelated to people who have autoimmune conditions like lupus. So people who have lupus are having immune systems that are going haywire. And it turns out that people who have lupus, guess what, guess what helps people with lupus when they have big lupus flare-ups? What do you think helps? Hydroxychloroquine, because it does have a suppressive effect on those cytokine storms. So they figure, okay, well, let's give that to these people with COVID-19 who are having really intense responses. And that's the theory behind uh, giving them hydroxychloroquine. There's also a new um, developed monoclonal antibody. This is like a, something that they've made in a laboratory. It's an antibody that binds to the cells that release these cytokines and turns them off. And I forget the name of that drug. It's in trials right now, but that has actually had substantial response, much more so than hydroxychloroquine but it's still in clinical trials. Wow. It's also, I think, very expensive, but they're finding that that may actually be very useful in these people. But this helps explain why some people respond so violently to COVID-19 because they're genetically predisposed to having a cytokine storm. And who, how you can find out if you're one of those people, I do not know. But that is, that is one of the issues uh, about, about this uh, variability that you're seeing in, in people who are getting so sick. Interesting. You know, I've actually taken uh, the malaria drugs a number of times because I've traveled to India uh, quite a bit a number of years ago. And the side effect that I had from the drug was very, very vivid, colorful dreams. It was actually, you know, very, very interesting. But I think what uh, our president is really trying to say is, look, if it's of the last resort, why not? And I and I think that's really where he's coming from with with his, you know, his optimism, you know, without necessarily being backed by by, by all the science. Yeah, I think the reason why there's a lot of pushback on that is because it is not and an, an, it's not a drug that uh, unlike a lot of medications you think of, like, say, antibiotics, you know, penicillin or Cipro or just over the counter stuff like ibuprofen. I mean, those kinds of drugs, um, they're so safe, you can take heavy doses of any of those drugs, and it's really not going to harm you. But hydroxychloroquine, the, the, the drug that he's talking about, it has some very, very potentially dangerous side effects, including liver toxicity, cardiac arrhythmias, where it can cause your heart to go into fatal rhythms. And we've already seen reports in the news of people going on this drug um, and dying. Um, so I think the reason why people like Tony Fauci and others are pushing back hard is because to, to you know, sort of mass prescribe a drug that has very significant potential for causing harm without knowing at all whether there's been proven benefit 
it's not like a you might as well type of thing. It's, it's you got to really consider the risk. Yeah, for sure. Isn't there wasn't there a study about um, about Viagra potentially having some some impact? So that's really a fascinating one. It it, it turns out Viagra is maybe a little bit of a stretch, although it's so catchy in a headline, you can't yeah. help but raise your eyebrows. But the reason why Viagra came up is really because they they know they've always known so so. There is a molecule, or actually it's a compound known as nitric oxide or NO, nitric oxide. Nitric oxide it does a lot of things, but it causes certain blood vessels in the body to dilate. Um, and in particular, um, the arteries that go into your, uh, the, the, the blood vessels in your lung, and even some of the coronary blood vessels can dilate in the setting of nitric oxide. It's not it's not as um, profound as some people had hoped it would be for those purposes. Like there are some people who have lung conditions where they're not getting enough blood flow to their lungs. And that's what we're going to allude to with COVID-19 treatment. And they found that nitric oxide, if given in certain ways, particularly if it's inhaled in a gas form, it can really increase your blood flow to your lungs. Um, but then they try to make it in a pill form and while it only worked reasonably, not so great, it caused all the guys who took it to have amazing erections. And so that was the birth of Viagra. They realized that nitric oxide, it may not do so great for the things we'd hoped it would do, but lo and behold, it gives guys amazing erections. And that's, that's how Viagra works. It increases the amount of nitric oxide in the penis, and that helps you get erections. So we know that like right now, um, a mainstay of treatment for premature babies. So babies that are born premature, um, say 20 weeks or 25 weeks, that's way early. The biggest uh, mortality risk in those premature babies is um, the, the uh, underdeveloped lungs. That's the biggest issue. They can't get enough oxygen. And so without enough oxygen, they die. And so a lot of these babies born premature, they have to go on oxygen. But one way to limit the amount of, and when you give a newborn pure oxygen, this is getting a little off topic, but pure oxygen actually can be dangerous if given too long. Um, we, if you, you guys know that air is not pure oxygen. When you breathe air, it's only like, I think it's like 18% oxygen or something like that. Um, nitrogen actually is the highest component of air in, in terms of its gas components. And um, if you give 100% oxygen, you get what are called free radical damages. And um, that, just as a, as a trivia, that's how Stevie Wonder was, became blind because he was premature. They gave him pure oxygen for like several weeks and it made him blind. Anyway, wow. that's an aside. Look at, look at you throwing in the, the little, little fun trivia. fact. Yeah. Little fun fact. Anyway, what they've discovered now is that if they can increase blood flow into the lungs on these premature babies, they can minimize the amount of supplemental oxygen and they do great. And guess what that uh, gas is that they give them when they're born? It's nitric oxide. They give them pure nitric oxide in a gas. It really increases their blood flow into their lungs and they do much better. And what they really want to start doing is try giving these people with severe lung dysfunction with COVID-19 nitric oxide. And lo and behold, they've already been showing that some of these people have responded incredibly well to it. 
And so now people are wondering, hey, maybe there's like an oral form we can have people take earlier in the course of their illness. Let's try Viagra. <laughs> so that's where the news has come up where, hey, maybe if we give people Viagra early in the course of their condition, it will increase blood flow to their lungs and prevent them from having deterioration that leads to needing a ventilator. That's the Viagra story. Hey, Doc. Yo. I I read something um, that was initially that basically was saying, and it was it was with regard to the healthcare workers, in in that when you are exposed time and time and time again to the virus, you 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 are potentially inhaling the droplets um, many more times than just sort of a a casual encounter and. What, what some of the reading is indicating is that some of the cases are much more severe around the folks who are repeatedly exposed to the virus because it's they have it in their in their lungs in much larger concentrations than than the folks who maybe have just inhaled one droplet or something like that. Does that make well, any I mean, sense? I think, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know about the people who are repeatedly exposed, but I, I can't speak to that. But I can say that. I do strongly believe and, and, and feel like I've, I've validated this from some of the things I've read that it certainly does relate to the amount of, you know, viral particulates that you inhale. So, yeah, I mean, if you're just getting a tiny little uh, whiff of, you know, viral particles because you walked by somebody, they sneezed and you and there's, there's a heavy wind and you just only got like a, just a few viral particles like you might just get a tiny little response and who knows, that might be enough to make you immune. I don't know. But if you're like in an emergency room and there's like 50 people in there and they're all coughing and sneezing and they are all potentially uh, positive for COVID-19 and you spend five minutes in that ER and you're just inhaling pure COVID-19 air, you're much more likely to get uh, a lot sicker. So yeah, no, there's no question that the quantity of viral particulates that you are inhaling has, to me, a, a much more significant factor in terms of how sick you can get. I have no doubt. Well, and, and credit credit to you, Doc, uh, ahead of the curve, literally on this thing. With your two weeks ago, your advice was, or your prediction anyway, I guess, was if we all just wore masks, we could all start living a little bit more. And sure enough, in the last couple of days, you're seeing. Um, not right. just a recommendation from the CDC, but now the uh, Riverside County, which is a huge county uh, east of I Los Angeles that. and yeah, the governor that. of California. And, and it's becoming, I know just for me in the last 48 hours, even walking the dog in the neighborhood outside, I mean, I'm, there's 20 feet between you and the next person and everyone's wearing masks, which yeah. I, I, you know, I suppose that's a positive step is everyone just wants to do whatever they can. Yeah. I'm not wearing masks when I'm outside. I'm just, well, I'm very distancing myself from people, but if I'm going into buildings, I'm wearing a mask. So I just, I, I, I kind of agree. I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm the same way. And I'll tell you, it gives me, it does give me some comfort to be in a store, you know, although I'm doing that maybe once a week at this point, but when I am there, you know, the mask, uh, you know, it, it feels better. Although I also, you know, of course there's always there's always uh, contrarians and basically it's not a contrarian point of view, but uh, someone was saying, don't feel so confident. You know, basically you have the mask on, but you're not a superhero. Um, do what you got to do and get out. 
Doc, did you shave your facial hair so that way the mask fits you more snugly? So when you wear the N95 mask, um, which, you know, really should just be reserved for healthcare providers, um, you need to have like a perfect seal. So yeah, I, take, I completely shaved off my beard so that the N95 mask would be, uh, they'd be able to seal and I would get the full benefit of using it. Um, I, you know, when I go into stores, I don't necessarily, you know, if I have to go to the market, um, I typically just wear a regular mask because I'm trying to, I only have like three N95 masks and they're really only meant to be used disposably. And I'm obviously using them recurrent uh, in a recurrent basis. I basically, when I'm in my office, I, I sit in my, in my consultation office. And when the nurse tells me that there's a patient ready to be seen, I walk out of my office. She has a pair of gloves on the door that are in a little slot. I put the gloves on. I have, a co I have an N95 mask. I stick it on right then and there, walk in the room, deal with the patient. As soon as I get out of the room, I take off the N95 mask. The idea being that I feel like it's in that concentrated space that I really need to be as careful as possible for both myself and for the patient. Um, but in the rest of the office, I either just go straight back to my consultation office where it's just me and then I won't wear a mask. Or if I'm walking around the office and interacting with the staff, I'll typically wear a um, like a regular surgeon's mask as opposed to the N95 mask. Do you need more N95 masks, Doc? I would love more N95 masks, GB. Can you provide some for me? You're going to fly your plane to China, GB, and uh, hook them up? Yeah, let me, I, 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 I may have a couple for you. All right. I mean, the flip side is I'm, I'm always, I feel, I feel, I'm always in a, I, I would be very nice to have uh, some more N95 masks. I mean, it's funny because just the other day, just yesterday, um, a good friend of ours knocked on our, on our, rang our door, not our doorbell, but we have a gate. We rang the gate and we opened it over. We said, hey, how are you? And we saw him across the way. You know, our gate's like 50 feet from our door or 40 feet from our door. And, um, and he said, how are you? And, and my wife looked and said, hey, are you wearing an N95 mask? And, and he said, well, yeah, you know, we have some because I, I work in this kind of uh, industry where um, we, sometimes we like to have these on hand. And so I had like, you know, 20 in stock for, you know, and so I'm wearing one. Well, she got really upset. I had a like, I had a kind of like, I was like, calm down. Just like, cause she felt like he should not be wearing those masks and he should have given them to the hospital because they're desperate. And I understand she gets very emotional. She got very upset. And I mean, I understand where she's coming from. It's, it's like one of those things where I, I don't know what to say. It's like, I don't know if 15 or 20 masks is going to make a big difference for the hospital. Um, they need thousands of masks. And, and this, individual happened to have a stash of them. And so he was using them. I, it's like, I, I, I mean, this is where our society, it just gets really tricky, you know? Well, it's funny. How it's funny you mentioned that because I, I looked in my, um, in my tool area and we had two N95 masks left over for when there were bad fires out here. Um, that's, that's how this, that's how this guy got them. That's how this guy had them. That's exactly how he had them. He had them for I, a staff in his uh in his business and that's why he had them yeah i had i had no idea and pamela my wife had gotten them i don't know how you know like i said it's probably a year ago when we had these really bad yeah. fires so and 
I'm, I mean, they were used already. And but is, are those worse for me to wear in a grocery store than a bandana or like what should people you know, you're seeing everyone making masks. Is that do you know, is there a. So better, I read there's vest? actually if you guys go on to the New York Times uh, website and I think it's free right now um, and and search, um, you know, something about, you know, how to make masks. There's an article. It's very good about all kinds of um, fabrics and which are the best fabrics to use to make masks. The worst is a bandana or a scarf. They literally have, they, they cut down on like, the best is a 60 thread count piece of cotton or quilters cotton, like people who quilt. There's something called quilters cotton. That is the best fabric. So is 600 thread count. That's considered really good. You can also take a HEPA filter material from your vacuum cleaner bag and stick yeah, it in between. That. Yeah, and stick it in between two uh, layers. The only thing that bothers me about that a little bit is that I'm not sure like what kind of chemicals are in those HEPA filter bags and whether you're like inhaling chemicals that you don't want to inhale. That's the only thing that bothers me about that. But they basically said like, hey, oh, and here's what the guy, he was a scientist who talked about all this and he measures how much, he measures exactly what size particulates can get through these fabrics. And he said, here's the, here's the poor man's test. You ready? He said, if you can hold up a piece of fabric and the light comes, you know, shines right through. So think of a bandana. If you hold up your bandana and you put it up to a light, the light's going to go right through it. Um, he said, that's the worst fabric for, for protection. What about like a small gym towel? I mean, those seem pretty dense. Uh, if you can breathe, that's the problem. If you're, if, if, cause it can be too thick and then you can have trouble breathing. Hmm. Well, breathing's overrated. So <laughs> you know what I saw on the internet at one point and I, 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 needless to say, the scientist wasn't Jewish, so he didn't say anything about this, but I saw on, on the internet that somebody was making them out of kippahs, out of yarmulkes. Oh yeah, I saw little, that too. Punch little holes and put a rubber band in there. And, and yeah. if you think about it, it's kind of like quilter's cotton. Like if you hold up a good yarmulke to the light, I don't think the light will come through. Yeah, like a bra. You know, it's just it's the right shape. Same thing with the bra, yeah. All right, guys. Uh, thank you, Doc, as always, for, for the work you're doing. And, uh, you know, basically keeping people out of the hospital and keeping them comfortable. And you know, that's the most important thing right now. All right, perfect. All right, perfect. Until next week, guys, thank you. All right, thank you, boys. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Two Men and a Doc is hosted by Dr. Michael Hyman, GB, and Jay Tannenbaum. Produced by Jay Tannenbaum. The views and opinions expressed here by Dr. Hyman are based on his medical training and experience, but if you or someone you know are experiencing any medical issues, you should, of course, consult your own physician. We welcome your questions about men's health or anything you've heard on this podcast. So write to us at mail at twomenandadoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at twomenandadoc.com. If you live in the Los Angeles area and want to see Dr. Hyman, you can find his contact info at drhymanla.com. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N-L-A.com. And these links are also in the show notes. That's it for this week. See you next time on Two Men and a Doc.